Thank you, praise team. I'm so grateful. Laura, that was a beautiful song. And I would consider it an honor if you didn't listen to one of my sermons and wrote a beautiful song like that. So get writing. I'm so grateful for artists who can just lift the words of Scripture off of the page and put them to music in a way that connects with their generation. I graduated with a degree in historical theology, and most of you would tune out right there, but uh, one of the beautiful things that you learn when you understand the great 2,000-year history of Christ's church is that uh, music has been a fundamental part of our worship and will be until uh, the rest of eternity. In fact, we sang a song that we will sing when we are gathered together. The book of Revelation says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And the first song that we sang right before that uh, was the, uh, a, a musical form of the Apostles' Creed. One of the oldest things that the church has been saying that we believe together as a church all over the world. We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate, uh, born of the, uh, the Virgin Mary, crucified under Pontius uh, Pilate. Uh, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. Uh, he ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Universal Church, the uh, forgiveness of sins. Uh, I'm missing some because I actually didn't prepare to talk about this together. The, the resurrection of the body. Amen. Um, things that we have always believed. And for 2,000 years it started, in fact, with... Uh, Christians uh, singing songs that were actually in the Bible, the Psalms, and then they put theology to simple tunes. And for hundreds of years, uh, that developed into things like Gregorian chants, which today we, doesn't make any sense to us, but was the, the heart blood of worship for hundreds of years in the church. True believers were singing these chants and these, these repetitions that, that were meaningful to them because they were scripture. They were straight out of the Latin Bible. And then eventually... Uh, the Bible started being translated into English and these people started making songs that were straight out of the Bible and they were putting them to tunes and some of them got their heads chopped off or were burned at the stake because they were teaching people the Bible in English through song. And song has been such an important part of the development of the Christian church. One of the newest trends in uh, music is the great hymn writers. For the past 200 years, we've developed this incredible, incredible a library of these hymns that teach rich, deep theological truths. And then we have these new uh, contemporary writers who are reaching all the way back to the Apostles' Creed and, and bringing that back into a church that maybe has forgotten it or hasn't said that ever before. 2,000 years of music, none better than the other, none more holy than the other. In fact, all of that music for 2,000 years was not acceptable to God not worthy of his glory, but he accepted it because of his grace and he continues to accept our worship. So I just want to thank our worship team. That was just absolutely phenomenal. That was free. You're going to be a little bit late, though, to lunch. Uh, when I, in Michigan, where I grew up, there are lakes everywhere. You're never more than 10 minutes from a lake. Now, they're not lakes like y'all have down here where you blow up you know, a big part of the earth and you fill it with water. Uh, that, that's, that's a lake, man. That's a lake. Uh, that's a great lake. In fact, we have some that are similar to that. They're a little bit bigger, but that's okay. Uh, but mo most of our lakes are maybe what y'all would call ponds here. They're, they're not very big. They're, they're naturally occurring lakes, and you're never about 10 minutes. So I spent a lot of time in these little dinky boats or on rafts or just bobbing in the middle of a lake sometimes because I grew up on one for 
oh, I don't know, seven or eight years of my life. And I remember a time where I was uh, in the middle of a lake and I was on some sort of uh, vessel, which may be a generous term for it, but I had to go back to the house. So I looked down the lake and I was kind of out there and I think I had gone down a little bit and I, I found the beach that was mine and I started paddling, paddle, 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 paddle. And I would get all the way there, I'd get closer, closer, paddle, 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 and I'd just keep my eye on that beach. And I wouldn't take my eye off of it. In fact, I would just keep paddling on, paddling on, paddling. Finally, I got to the beach and I look up and the house above the beach is not my house. <laughs> I had done everything you're supposed to do. You keep your eye on where you're going and row, 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 paddle, paddle, paddle. But I had my eye on the wrong beach and, and I was down about three or four houses. You know, I found my way back. But it's such an interesting analogy to our life, our spiritual life. When we have our eye on the wrong thing, no matter how hard we are trying, how fast we're going, how hard we're paddling, uh, we end up in the wrong place. All right, and, and that's what we're going to talk about today. In fact, we're going to talk about the end times a little bit today, something that is very exciting to many and very scary to others. Uh, it was very exciting to the disciples, and they asked Jesus about it, but Jesus is actually going to give us a, a little bit of a warning. Brother James will finish the, the uh, chapter, I believe, next week, or go deeper into it next week. But first, before Jesus talks about too much of the end times, he actually gives some warning of things to avoid things not to put your eye on, and then something that we should keep our eye on, something that we should expect as it relates to the end times. So turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 13, and we're going to be in just uh, verses 1 to 13 this morning. Mark chapter 13, verses 1 to 13. And we'll begin just by reading verses 1 to 3. <clears throat> As he was going out of the temple, that's Jesus, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, excuse me, verse 4, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign when these things are about to be accomplished? The temple that Jesus had just spent, uh, let's say, a couple chapters in, was one of the great wonders of the ancient world. It was built by a, a guy named Herod the Great. I think he added the great to the end of his name, I'm not sure. But he was a great builder. He, he built buildings in Caesarea, in uh, Jerusalem, that were just magnificent. And, and people would go from all over the world to see these buildings that Herod had constructed. In fact, the temple, uh, even though it was one of the great wonders of the world in the time of Jesus, wasn't even finished. In fact, it wouldn't be finished for another about 30 years after Jesus was crucified and resurrected. Okay, And they used these massive stones, stones that would be bigger than uh, most of your trucks, to build this building. And you think about the technology that they had. It's just incredible. But they built this courtyard, and I've shown a picture of it before, uh, but it was about 400 yards wide by 500 yards long, Okay, so picture uh, eight football fields wide 
and five football fields long, even a Texan would say, wow, that's a big football field, right? That was a huge amount of space, and that was a space where everybody could come and gather together on the feast days and worship. They built this magnificent building. In fact, I think, it, uh, I think the commentary I was reading said it was about one-twentieth uh, of the size of the entire city. So 20 of those temples would have made up the entire city of Jerusalem. And so as Jesus is leaving the temple after just besting uh, the, the Pharisees and Sadducees and the scribes and kind of a, a little theological debate, he's leaving the temple, going out the east exit towards what's called the Mount of Olives. And his disciples are looking around and they're just saying, what an incredible building we have built. Now, I, I went to school in Chicago, I got my, my undergrad there and uh, I'm a, a small-town guy. The first thing I remember about going through Chicago is we were going through, and I was like, this is just like the movies because there were literally 50 people on a corner waiting to cross the street, and they would all herd across the street together, and I just thought it was incredible. And as I kind of got to know the place, I started walking around the city and exploring. We were right downtown, and I found that I was walking around the city like this. Now, Brett's pretty good at personal security. Brett... Uh, Tell them how blessed I was to survive walking around the city like this. Never got robbed, never got, you know, nothing. I was just amazed at these incredible buildings. You know, the things that man can create uh, are truly incredible, and they can really captivate us, whether they're uh, massive buildings or whether they're just uh, really small, pretty shiny devices. Uh, this captivates all of my children. I try not to let it captivate them too much, and it doesn't take much for me all of a sudden just to be having a conversation, and oh, look, uh, some of you are on Facebook right now, aren't you? Because you just posted, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> don't get captivated. There are things that man can build that can captivate us, and the one that was in Jesus' day was the temple. Man, the temple was beautiful. It was incredible. It was awesome. And now we have this picture of Jesus leaving the temple. And then you don't have a whole lot of, well, you have nothing, basically. And the next verse says, and then he was on the Mount of Olives. And, and it's kind of a weird scene change. If you don't know your geography, again, you go out. <clears throat> the temple was right on the east side of the city. There's an entrance and exit to the city. There's a gate. So you go out the gate. You go down this you know, valley called the Kidron Valley. And then you'd go up this mountain called the Mount of Olives. It's a very significant mountain. And in fact, this, is ha this had happened before. Uh, it happened in the Old Testament. <clears throat> you don't have to turn there. But the prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 10 is a, a vision that Ezekiel has of the glory of God leaving the temple. You see, the temple was the place where, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm struggling, where God actually dwelt with his people all throughout the Old Testament times until he had finally had enough and rejected them and took his presence away. And Ezekiel says that the, uh, that the presence of the Lord got up from the temple and it, it hovered over that valley and it rested on the mountain that was just east of the city. That would have been the Mount of Olives. You can look that up in chapter 10 of Ezekiel right at the end. And then the glory of the Lord departed from his people. All right, and now again, right before Jesus is crucified, he's leaving the temple. He's going away in the presence of God that is fully in Jesus Christ. Uh, was sitting on the mountain looking over at the temple. He just told the disciples, that temple that is so great, it's going to be destroyed. Now, we make movies all the time about New York and L.A. and Chicago just being wiped out by, uh, you know, one disaster or another. It's kind of entertaining to us. But to, to them, Jesus saying that the temple would be destroyed, it was a signal of something bigger. It was a signal of an apocalypse of a, a worldwide, world-ending 
event that had been prophesied in the Old Testament. Uh, sometimes they call it the day of the Lord. Sometimes it's just looked at as God's judgment. Sometimes it's the, the day when the Messiah comes back, wipes out everything, makes all things new. Uh, they were expecting something like that even in Jesus' day. And so when he said that temple is going to be destroyed, they understood that what he was saying is one day, one day God's going to wipe out everything. He's going to make it new. God's going to reign on this earth. And they wanted to know when. Look at verse 5. I'm sorry, verse 4. Tell us, when will these things be accomplished? And what are the signs that these things will happen? Verse 5, Jesus told them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of war, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but it is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. The disciples want to know, okay, he's talking about the day, that big day. You know, when I was a kid, it was the Left Behind series and the, when the rapture would happen, and everybody was picking their dates. The disciples really aren't alone. Uh, they wanted to know, what is the date that this is going to happen? When can we expect, what can we look for to tell us that it is getting closer? They were not alone. In fact, this is 22 pages that I printed out, and it's simply a list of people making predictions about the end of the world throughout history. Okay, and it, it's, uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, uh, but it's, it goes all the way, all the way back to 66 AD, uh, 365 AD, 375 AD, 500, there's, cash, there's bishops on here, there are, quote, prophets, there are all sorts of astrologers, there are kings, well, Christopher Columbus is on here, and then you get to the 1900s and it kind of explodes, because it began to, it began to become a big business, picking that date picking the date that Jesus is going to come back or the Lord is going to uh, avenge the world. And even in weird ways, people are always looking to find out when, it, when are the end times going to be. What does Jesus say to that? His words to the disciples are, don't be led astray. Don't be led astray. In fact, watch out that no one deceives you. He doesn't tell them when it's going to happen. He doesn't give them even a hint. He just says, you want to know when, when it's going to happen? You're already on the path to being deceived. There's a, um, uh, you know, there's uh, all sorts of date pickers out there, and I made the mistake of typing into Google, end of the world 2020, you know, just to see what would come up. And there's uh, all, pe all sorts of people who have, claimed it's going to be this day, and they do math and multiplication from different numbers in the Old Testament. There's a system called gematria, which is uh, maybe used in Revelation. It, it, it's where uh, if a name adds up to that number, 666, that magic number, then maybe that person is the Antichrist. And there's a website you can go to, and you can type in any sort of name and all sorts of words and see what number it adds up to. They do all the math behind the scenes. So I was actually teaching the youth on this in Revelation one time, and I thought, well, I'm just going to play around with it because I was surprised that that existed. I started typing names in, right? And I started with the bad kids first. You know, I'm trying to find the Antichrist. So I'm typing in. Couldn't get it, couldn't get it, couldn't get it. And all of a sudden, one of their names added up to that magical number. 
666, and I thought, oh, man, I shouldn't have done it because now for the rest of my life I have to keep that a secret and not tell that person because they will get mocked for the end of their, till the end of their life. But people are looking. People are trying to find the, the, the magical key, that magical sign, that little, that little thing that tells them the Antichrist is here, the end is coming. And Jesus' response is, be on your guard. Watch out. Don't be deceived. We're not supposed to be looking for those magical signs. We're not supposed to be uh, looking. And there there are several things that can lead us astray, that can deceive us. He lists a few of them. He says, many will come in my name saying that I am he. And they will deceive many. One of the things that can deceive people are false messiahs. All right, he's saying many will come in my name saying that I am he. Literally, it's ego, I mean, it's I am. It's the, the proclamation <clears throat> that Jesus makes that at the end of the, the book that he is God. Uh, but he's saying that there's going to be people that come that are going to be great political leaders that can lead you astray. We think of Messiah as a spiritual guy, but in their terms, Messiah was a political leader. He was somebody who would come in, wipe out Rome, knock over everything, deliver the, the Jews from their uh, captivity. All right? And it's something that they were waiting to join up with. And you know what? Guess what? We're in an election season, and that, that risk still happens today. I, I'm a full red-blooded American patriot. I intend to vote. I have very strong views about uh, my beliefs and the Constitution and how the, the world should be governed. But the thing I love most about America is that America has a natural uh, antipathy against the government. We always see the government as somebody who could always turn against us and enslave us. And so I'm never going to go rah, rah, rah for any politician because, you know, my rah, rah, rah for a politician could actually close the door for me to share the gospel with somebody else. And that's the, that's the thing I want you to watch out for this year. Uh, if, if your support for anybody, I don't care what, who you support, whether it's local things that are happening. I've got some local races that I'm looking at and the national election. Uh, if, you're, if your support or if your uh, if your hatred for another politician causes somebody else to shut you down and not allow you to communicate the gospel, you've been led astray. You weren't watching out. You're following a political figure because your number one goal on earth is not to make sure anybody gets elected. Do it. Vote. Share things. That's wonderful. That's fine. But your number one priority is to make sure that people know Jesus. He says, many will come in my name saying, I am he. They will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but it is not yet the end. Uh, Military conflicts. Man, when Iran and Russia and China start getting feisty in the news, uh, you can just watch. Just just watch your computer screen and see what happens. You will see uh, people will dust off their prophecy books, and they're going to start making YouTube videos and start writing blogs and start selling their stuff uh, because uh, those particular uh, nations are kind of uh, the, the hot button ones for uh, end of end times prophecies. And so people are going to start saying, this is it. This is the time. Oh, Iran did this. Oh, Russia's doing this. All right, let's, let's get, you know. No, Jesus is saying, actually, there's been wars ever since the beginning and there will be wars ever since the end. Don't get led astray. He actually says, don't be alarmed. And that's one of the things that is interesting about the end times. Is it so alarming to people? And it's something that, that we can easily get swept up in. It's sensational. 
right? And it, it, because it's the end of the world, it's kind of a big deal, right? But he says, don't be alarmed. These things must take place. It's not yet. Nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. He's saying these things happen all the time. They've happened throughout history. And he says there will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are just the beginning of birth pains. Uh, I was uh, sitting in a church, a really good pastor, a really good preacher, one I still respect and admire, uh, was talking about, he was preaching on Revelation, and uh, he had done some research, and he had a graph that showed the number of earthquakes that were recorded throughout history, and man, that thing shot up in the last five years. It was kind of, you know, normal earthquakes, and then pew. So he said, listen, I'm not going to pick a date, but I think it's coming because there's a lot of earthquakes happening. I just heard on the news, I think it was yesterday, uh, and I don't remember the time period, but it was something in the last month or so. Uh, Puerto Rico said something like 600 earthquakes. People are sleeping outside of their houses in Puerto Rico. They're sleeping on their front lawns because they're scared that an earthquake will happen and their house will collapse on them. This is happening right now. Uh, it's, a, it's just this incredible thing that people have never seen before. 600 earthquakes, some big, some very minor, but 600 earthquakes. So somebody might look at that and say, man, the end is near. The end is coming. He says, Earth, but Jesus isn't saying look for earthquakes. He's saying, listen, there's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be famines. They're just the beginnings of the birth pain. These are, these are the things that come in a fallen world, right? Is the end coming? Absolutely. Should we be ready? Absolutely. But don't look for those people who are going to tell you it's now. Or I can tell you when it is for 1995. Or, or, or just follow me or join my cause because I know what's going on. And I know that this political leader is going to deliver us from it. He says, no, don't be alarmed. These things must take place. The world is going on much as it has for all of history. Don't be led astray. Don't be carried off by the sensational. But what should we do? when we hear about these things? What should we do when we think about when is the return of Christ? When is the, the end of the world coming? When are the end times approaching? Uh, let me ask you a question. What would change if you knew that Jesus was coming back Thursday? What would change about your life if you knew that Jesus Christ was going to return Thursday and you were going to see him face to face? Would you be a better Christian? Would you share the gospel more? Would you watch less TV? Would you pay less attention to the world? Well, I got a deal for you. You don't have to know when Jesus is coming back to do all of those things. And that's the attitude that we have to have. All right? Not necessarily that Jesus is coming back tomorrow because, you know, one thing I wouldn't do is save for my kid's college if I thought Jesus was coming tomorrow. So, uh, you know, I'm not going to go totally off the wall, but I need to be ready. I need to be prepared for my Savior to come home and to, to, to see him face to face and actually to kind of act like I'm presenting. This is what I've done with my life. When I, I have, this is the best time for me as a father. It's literally what I was, you know, that I had those wonderful fuzzy feelings about before I was dad. I thought about coming home from work. Kids were off at school or right now it's kids day out and they would come and they would run and they'd hug, daddy, and they'd give me a big hug and, and then they would show me what they did. And that's exactly what's going on right now. So I'm just on cloud nine 
as a dad. Addie Rose especially, she'll come home from kids' day out, and, and I'll come home, and I'll, I'll, I'll say, what did you do today? And she'll, actually, I won't even have to say that. She'll say, I made you something, and she'll go to her little backpack, she'll unzip it, and uh, she'll pull out the folder, you know the folder that they have there, and uh, she'll pull out what she colored, and she gives it to me. I made this for you, and it just, it's the most wonderful thing that could touch my heart. It just melts me every single time, every single mo- Monday and Wednesday. Um, that's, that's what we should be expecting. When we see Jesus giving an account of our life, what have we done for him while we've been here? And uh, have we lived our life as if he is returning, or have we just lived as if we don't buy any of this at all? Part of showing what we have done for Christ is suffering. Look at verses 9 to 13 quickly. But you, be on your guard. They will hand you over to local courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. And it is necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations. So when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand what you will say. Say whatever is given to you at the time. For it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will betray brother to death. And a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. One of the interesting things about this passage, remember they they asked about the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem. Actually, that happened. That happened in 70 A.D., uh, Rome crushed a rebellion in Jerusalem, and they crushed, you know, that's what Rome did. They crushed rebellions. And it's kind of interesting, you know, Jesus said not one stone will be left on another. Um, I remember in a class that I took, they were talking about this event, and I'd never heard this before. And what, what apparently happened in that siege and in that destruction of the temple is there was a massive fire in the temple. And they weren't able to get all the golden instruments and silver things out of the temple, Right? And so actually what happened is a lot of that precious metal melted because of this massive fire in the main part of the temple. And it actually melted between the crevices of these massive stones. And so the Roman commander had his uh, troops, after it was destroyed and conquered, actually take every single stone off of one another so that they could uh, retrieve the gold and the silver and the precious metals that had kind of melted down in those. It's, uh, his prophecy was fulfilled to, to a T, Okay, Uh, not one stone was left on another, but the way prophecy works throughout the Old Testament, and I think here, and there's there's different interpretations of this passage, I'm giving you mine, is that some of this was going to happen right away. Some of this is talking about A.D. 70, but all of it is also a picture of a greater thing that's going to happen, and that's what happens with a lot of prophecies Uh, in the Old Testament. They're fulfilled pretty quickly, but there's a greater prophecy that is coming, and that's what he's saying here is that uh, there's actually going to be people turning each other over. We see some of this stuff fulfilled in the book of Acts. Paul goes before uh, governors. He actually goes before Caesar, uh, if tradition is correct, because of Jesus as a witness to them. So, We see some of this fulfilled in the book of Acts, but this is something that all Christians should expect, and it's something that's happening today. There are no shortages of books right now that will tell you about the persecution that is happening all over the Middle East. And you can read the stories that will turn your stomach and break your heart, where kids are literally identifying parents and relatives to authorities and saying, that person, he's a Christian. He was my father, now he's nothing to me. He's a Christian, take him away. And those people are being killed in the name of Jesus Christ. We have, by and large, avoided this in our country, and that's a wonderful 
I'm so grateful for our country, for our freedom. But we have to still be ready. That's what Jesus says to all this. He says, be on your guard. And he doesn't say be on your guard to defend yourself. You know, I will defend myself against people seeking to do me harm, people trying to rob me or kill me or hurt my friends or family. I believe in uh, the God-given right of self-defense. But when it comes to religious persecution, Jesus doesn't call us to defend ourselves. What does he call us to do? He says at the very end of verse 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. It's okay to run from persecution. It's okay to tell other people about Jesus Christ. It's okay to, I think, defend yourself against harm. But when it comes to religious persecution, we don't kill for our faith. We don't take up arms for our faith. That's not something that Jesus ever tells us to do. What he tells us to do is to endure persecution. If you're like me, that goes against everything you believe in, every, every grain in your body. I, I want to I, I fight back. I, I want to I take people to court. I want to defend my, my rights. But when it comes to the persecution of our faith, Jesus said, it's the one who endures to the end, who's willing to go through that persecution, willing to be hated by everyone because of my name, because that's what happened to Jesus. Jesus could have defended himself. And Jesus could have made the end of the world come at any time. But he endured this great suffering because he had a higher calling, which is your salvation, your redemption. The way that we can honor him with our life is when religious persecution comes. Don't fight. Don't get angry. Don't yell at people. Don't ostracize your family members. Be willing to lose. Be willing to endure. Why would you endure? Because you have this incredible, incredible hope that is so much greater than your physical life, than your property, than your reputation, than your job. And that's what we have to focus on. That's what Jesus says to keep our eye on. You remember, if I was keeping my eye on the right beach, I would have ended up at home. And Jesus says, if you're keeping your eye on the right things. If you, are, if you are, literally, the word is watch out. It's used uh, twice here, and it's going to be used when Brother Jane preaches as well. He, he's telling them to look. Look, look, look. What are you looking for? Look past all of the hatred. Look past all of the chaos. Look past all of the sensationalism. Look to Christ. Even if it means you suffer, you look to Christ. We had a wonderful um, Sunday school this morning. I, I hope you come to Sunday school, and uh, we're starting to go through a uh, series on defending your faith, and, and this verse was brought up, and it just hit me. I'd like to share it with you. It's at the end of the book of Jude, and it's a benediction, which is a, a blessing that Jude writes at the end of his uh, one-chapter book. And he says, Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling, to make you stand in the presence of his glory, without blemish and with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ, be glory, majesty, power, and authority, before all time, now and forever. Amen. You may hear those and you may hear just a bunch of fancy words. But what this says is that God, who is completely just in taking any one of us, sending us away from his presence into uh, eternal punishment because of our sin, that God is not only able but is going to protect you from stumbling, and to make you stand in his presence. I want you to think about that, that moment when the world has, has ended, when it has been made new, and we are in the presence of God 
No crying, no shame, no tears, just pure peace. For the rest of eternity, you are going to literally and physically and bodily in your resurrected body serve the Lord Jesus Christ with joy, without pain, without fear. For eternity, for longer than we are able to comprehend. I want you to compare that to any persecution that might come, any hardship you might face in this life. Isn't it worth being there with Jesus to endure these persecutions? Isn't it worth when, when we have a hard time at work and we want to lash out at somebody, when one of our family members, somebody we love or care about, betrays us and we want to just trash them on, on social media or we want to just shut them out of our lives, uh, isn't it worth responding to them the same way Christ has always responded to us with love and grace and patience and kindness and gentleness? Isn't it worth it? He says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, that doesn't mean that you get saved by enduring. He's saying the one who endures to the end, they're the ones who are going to see that because they have been changed by Jesus Christ. And if all of this doesn't make any sense to you, if you don't, uh, you don't, you don't, you don't even think about loving your enemy or, or loving or being good to those who, who hurt you, maybe I could suggest to you that it's because you haven't experienced that love yourself. Because when you experience the love of God and you realize that you were that person, you were his enemy, you were the person who deserved eternal punishment and he loved you and died for you at that moment, you've experienced a love that changes you. It changes your eternal destiny, yes, but it changes who you are right here and now. If you can't love people that way, it might be because you're, you don't have that love that Jesus offers. Let's pray.